Hello, welcome to some Derps Talk About Games. I'm your co-host, Mango. And I am your co-host, Buddy. And today we're going to talk a little bit about Marxist video game theory. But before we do that, Buddy, why don't you tell the folks at home what it is we do on this podcast? Well, it's pretty simple. On this podcast, uh, we like to talk about games. Um, I'm going to kick this one off because this is my topic. Um, and also, I know that not everybody has the same kind of like background in some of this stuff that I do. So this is just going to be like a really quick crash course in what we mean when we say Marxist video game theory. Um, theory is used with media, right? So like with film and stuff like that as a way to apply kind of like a lens of cultural understanding to like the media that we consume. You know, something like a structuralist film theory talks about the underlying structures to narrative or to themes and stuff like that. Or a feminist film theory will talk about the way that women and uh, gender play into the concept of the film. And Marxist film theory um, is all about... I mean, frankly, it's not even really that much about, like, the content of the film, but it is all about the economic forces kind of behind the content. And so whenever we talk about things like how the Marvel movies are, you know, lowest common denominator and that's why they're making, you know, billions and billions of dollars or we talk about, like, the Fox-Disney merger and the effect that that will probably have on you know, the media that we consume, all this other kind of stuff. This is this all sort of, like, falls under the heading of, like, Marxist film theory. Um, I do want to, like, offer a quick disclaimer in case there are any experts in the crowd. I know I'm being very reductive here. There's a lot of different kinds of Marxist theories. Um, but what I'm interested in doing is kind of talking about that sort of lens through video games. Because something that we see in, like, the film side of things is that people don't actually care too much about sort of the industry that underlies the movies, right? The The, the Fox-Disney merger is seen as a good thing because it gives the Marvel Cinematic Universe access to the Fantastic Four and they can finally make a good Fantastic Four movie or whatever, um, rather than, you know, seeing the, the, the kind of, like, underlying mechanics of economics in a, in a good or bad way. But something that we talk about constantly in the video gaming community is the underlying kind of industry forces and the way that our money is interacting with the media and with the culture. So many of our conversations about video games come down to, is it worth the price? Are loot boxes something that is like economically ethical? Are we exploiting, you know, gambling addictions and children by including loot boxes in our video games? Are these giant multinational corporations that are the video game publishers, are they just in it to make money and to kind of numb you to, you know, your awful shitty life? Which is like some of the ways that we talk about the escapism of video games. And so what I'm mostly interested in, and why, and why I wanted to talk about this, is kind of that difference. Why is there such a focus on it when it comes to video games among, like, the gaming community, but among the, you know, the sort of, like, movie-going cinema community, we don't really care too much about that stuff. Yeah, no, it's definitely an interesting topic, and for the listeners at home, I, I am also... 
I, I'm right there with you. I'm, I'm a novice on this, I, but Buddy has introduced this concept to me. So if if I missed the mark here, Buddy, feel free to feel free to correct me. Um, but I've definitely thought about things that are kind of adjacent to this, um, and uh, I definitely I definitely agree with you that people tend to care a lot more about the economics here in, in ways that like so so I think the, the thing that springs to mind is the Epic Game Store, right? Like. Um, yeah, there's like that's been a huge one. Recently. There's like three different things behind this one. There's the the whole like buying exclusive things. And if this is good or bad for the industry, um, I think part and parcel of this is like the gaming enthusiast community feels like weirdly connected to the industry as like an active player where you don't really like, you know, a movie consumer. I don't think feels like as much a part of it. Maybe you kind of get there a little bit with like big fandoms, right? Like the Star Wars fandom feeling. Uh-huh. uh caring somewhat about some of that stuff. But um, uh, the other part of this, too, is, is um, the thing that put the Epic Games Store on the map is that they give a bigger cut to developers. And this is, yeah. you know, a good thing. And But um, uh, as, uh, as I've heard several people point out, like, you know, as consumers, that's not a thing we should we, – we should be careful about how much we care about that because that, that shouldn't actually pass on any benefit to us, right? Like, um, in, you know – to to some games credit, um, like I think it's Metro did this when they went exclusive. They cut the price by ten dollars because they were able to make back more money still even after that price cut. So they are passing the savings yeah. on the consumers. But um, I think like I have heard the argument made that like don't ignore shitty business practices that affect the consumers. Which you know the Epic Game Store isn't a fully fledged store yet because it's new. Like you know charitably because it's new uncharitably they also have some pol- like they're like we might not allow reviews or like you know it's developers opt in for reviews on the epic game store and you know but people are, you know they're the, the 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 consumer advocate branch of criticism is what i'm going to call it. like in that, that kind of like uh total biscuit uh, rest in peace kind of branch of the industry uh, of the criticism industry talking about like this is anti-consumer um yeah uh you know and it doesn't matter that uh, that Epic Games is giving a bigger cut to the pub- publishers if they're if they're hurting us as consumers. And so I, I, I think this is a very interesting question. But this is this is your uh, area of expertise. To, do, do you want to launch off with, with your well, own thoughts? Well, yeah, and, and I actually kind of think that the way we talk about Star Wars is an interesting I, – I hadn't thought about this, but like – there is that kind of obsession with Star Wars, especially since, like, all of this stuff with The Last Jedi. Yeah. Um, you know, like, YouTube videos that are talking about Kathleen Kennedy getting fired, right? And how Solo didn't make any money, and that's because of The Last Jedi sucking and Star Wars fans are, you know, like, are, like, boycotting it or whatever. Or even, like, Captain Marvel, right, is, like, the subject of this boycott that's not really a boycott, but now you have people on Twitter who are talking about a billion-dollar movie franchise, right, and a multinational corporation to, to, like, score points in a feud between like fans do you know what i mean and i feel like that like there's a kind of like marxist sort of like angle to all of to to, like all of that kind of framing around this stuff too and i think i think it just as much applies to the epic game store especially from the context of like yeah like steam has had a pretty solid monopoly right like not you know, not complete control, right? But definitely a, an incredibly dominating force um, as the driver of online PC game sales. And so, like, 
in a macro sense, I do sort of think that the Epic Game Store, you know, showing up with with a lot of you know showing up to play right like this isn't this isn't like gog or like green man gaming or whatever who are like you know featherweights going up against mike tyson right like this is like the epic game store has money and it has power and it and it clearly has influence um and so like in an abstract sense that seems like a good thing to me right like we'd probably want to see more competition in the space um origin sort of kind of did this but also sort of kind of just doesn't really care about it the battle.net store doesn't really care about it they only care about their own you know like their own properties and everything like that so somebody who's really kind of like willing to put the dukes up and and take the fight to steam seems like a good idea to me right but it does also kind of have these negative effects on the consumer base do i really need to go buy you know metro on the epic game store when all of my games are launched through steam and i don't want to have another you know game launcher i don't like the origin launcher and i don't like ubisoft's uplay launcher why would i you know like why would i go out and get the epic games launcher so like the a lot a lot of this stuff can kind of be contradictory um and there's like a weird kind of ambivalence to all of it because it's definitely true that even if i look at certain like corporate inf- influences and say this is a bad thing for the industry this is an unhealthy thing for the industry and i'd like to see it stopped like at what point do the consumers need to foot the bill for the progress that like the the abstract industry needs to kind of like go through and are they willing to foot that bill right and that's like i don't know that's a that's a like a tough question to to really sort of answer yeah, um, yeah, no, I, I, I definitely get that. I, I think, I think that a good place to kind of like jump in is, is, is kind of uh, the, the initial question you pose is why we care more than say a moviegoer. Um, yeah, and, and since you pitched this kind of episode idea to me, I've, I've been thinking about. It. I got a couple of ideas. I want, I want to bounce them off you. Um, okay. First, I think that, um, you know, uh, I think that. Uh, kind of at the top level, like maybe there's not as much of a difference as you think. Cause like um, we're enthusiasts and I wonder how much like the film enthusiasts, like I think there's still a gap. I just don't th- like, you know, um, you have said to me and, and your wife has, has, has mentioned that the studio behind Rick and Morty, I believe is, is not great. Um, and that, yeah. and that you, you, that there are problems there. And I think this, this kind of falls into that sort of criticism, but that's like, relatively inside baseball um and i don't know if that's because she's an industry or because like i feel like there are people who who are enthusiasts who, who would care about that kind of thing too um like you know there's there's occasional talk about like uh co-star uh pay parody and, and stuff like that um yeah yeah that's definitely uh, yeah that is actually kind of true that's something that we have been seeing more and more of i feel like yeah and and uh i definitely think though it is it is heavier in video games but i think i think there's a couple of uh, reasons for that, I think. Um, the first and foremost is, is this is a thing that's come up before in some of our discussions, but um, games are a consumer product in a way that movies aren't. Like games are this in this are this weird thing that's like this bridge between the consumer product space and kind of the art as a, a as a medium space, right? Like mm-hmm. um, we talk about this when we talk about like is the game worth dollars? Is the game worth the money, right? That's not a question you really ask of a movie. Um, and I think that, that because 
and then the reason the reason we ask that that question is because um is because it is at some way in, in some ways like a uh, akin to a toaster in the same way that it's akin to a movie um that it's a a a a, 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 a thing that you use for for uh in practical terms um yeah yeah that's actually really interesting and i kind of agree with that like something something interesting about movies is that they are by and large kind of standardized from like a pricing model right um and and part and parcel Um, of that is that they are the the pricing model is completely divorced from the piece of art right like yeah yeah right like so the theater sets your price um and they do that kind of per like format like per like you know if you go see a 3D movie, if you go see a 2D movie on a smaller screen or whatever, and that's not actually wrapped into the movie itself. It's not like you pay more to, to see a three-hour movie. Yeah, but like on the Steam store, you know, like if I buy, you know, Terraria, like an indie game like Terraria, that is probably going to be cheaper than buying a AAA game, right? And it's not like I go to a movie theater and Captain Marvel costs me $40 and Moonlight costs me 10 or something kind of along those lines. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, I also think that, you know, so for instance, um, I can't remember who wrote this. This is something I, I read a bunch in college, though. Um, was the idea that when you pay for a movie, you're not actually paying for in a lot of, in a lot of cases, you're not actually paying for the experience of sitting down in the theater and watching the film. You're paying for kind of like the water cooler aspect, right? That there is like a cultural conversation, and you get to pay a, a, a price of admission to it, right? Everybody in everybody is talking about whatever it is, right? Like some phenom movie. Um, and you want to be able to talk about it and give your perspective um, and participate fully in that conversation. And so you go out and you see whatever the Phenom movie is um, and how that kind of is like, you know, th- this is something this is something that people have talked about when when uh, the idea of like, well, spending twenty dollars to sit down for two hours in in a in a theater and watch a movie seems ridiculous. Like that's really expensive for what you're getting out of it. But the point is, you're actually getting a lot more out of it than you think because we don't really think in those kinds of like you know indirect sort of uh, sort of terms. And I think the same thing happens with games, right? You and I on this podcast have gone out to play games to be a part of the cultural conversation around them and to host you know an episode around them, right? Like Epic. Uh, or I'm sorry, Apex or uh, like PUBG, right? Like these are games that we talked about just as much to be a part of the conversation about everyone talking on the game as much as, you know, it as a product was was something that spending our kind of like first order time um, was going to be was going to be like kind of useful. Um, I also think to a certain extent, some of these things are um, because like games have exploded out in terms of like monetization and stuff like that. We as the consumers do have sort of a, a responsibility to kind of um, like curtail and influence how these things work. Like for instance, one of the things about movie theaters is that it, Movie. It is illegal for movie theaters to be owned by movie studios, and this is what used to happen in the twenties and thirties, right? Like all of the movie studios would have their own theaters, and so when you went to a movie theater, you would go to like 
you know, what I, like the Warner Brothers movie theater, and it would just show you Warner Brothers movies because they weren't really like staffing their competition, if that makes sense. But that was struck down under antitrust laws as being like vertical integration. Um, and so there is like a forced separation between these two things that we don't see as much of in like in the video game space, right? There's no like government bodies that are regulating that Steam is a monopoly and needs to, you know, take all of its own games off of Steam or, or whatever else, you know, any regulatory body would kind of demand. And in the place of that sort of regulation, I kind of feel like the collective will of the consumers are the are the the the, the axis of change, I would say, right? Like we talk about loot boxes or we talk about you know uh games with bad monetization policies and those things materialize into action in the same way that like you know consumers can petition the government to materialize action. i mean what we're talking about is is, is the, the the free market in, in in a sense right like we refuse to buy loot boxes and that's a that's a market signal that mm-hmm. like that, that discourages it right like and you know it's 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 you know organized boycotts don't usually do a lot, but like it's also kind of like the stigma around loot boxes doesn't require a kind of organized blackout type boycott thing in order for it to work. It's just like kind of the negative uh, uh, the stigma around it kind of influences companies in, in various and sund- sundry ways. Yeah, especially because I think the democratization of uh, kind of like the press, insofar as you want to say that social media and like twitter and facebook and stuff like that reddit can all serve the same sorts of um role that the press would traditionally you know like 50 years ago kind of serve right 50 years ago you might have film critics who are trashing some movie and saying that it's bad and don't go see it and so people don't go see it nowadays you don't really need like a film critic or like a video game critic to kind of like get you there i mean sometimes they will obviously Uh, this isn't to doubt the power of film critics uh and and video game critics but like you know someone who posts on the anthem subreddit about how bad the loot in anthem does isn't a journalist in the traditional sense but he is having a journalistic effect when that person is influencing like the purchasing behavior of so many people who you know like who play that game and i think that that like there is real teeth to that right not just we i mean we've seen it most recently with anthem and like all of this backlash to anthem which i do think keeps people away from the game because the word of mouth is so awful um but like even other games and properties carry that like no man's sky right i think will probably almost forever carry that stigma of like a a game that didn't deliver um even after you know two years of change that they have implemented to it yeah, I, I don't know. I, I feel like the conversation around No Man's Sky has shifted, but I definitely um, understand your point. I think that there's definitely some, like there's definitely going to be part of its story, um, and it's something I want like kind of part and parcel of this. Um, just kind of bring it back around to um, why we we care so much is is there is more opportunity for the economic model that underlies the the game to affect your actual game experience than there is in a movie right like if you know let's say i go to like you know richie mcrich's theater that has like the best equipment and he charges 44 or you know 40 dollars a ticket 
um, for a movie, um, that doesn't fundamentally, like, you know, like, yes, on the margins that, you know, you see it on a better screen and whatever you see it, uh, you hear it with a better sound system, but it doesn't fundamentally alter the, the, the experience of seeing that movie it doesn't fundamentally alter the, the story. Um, uh. uh, whereas like, like when a game revolves, it's kind of post-purchase market around microtransaction loot boxes that affects how the game works right like um what i like to think about is uh a lot of cosmetics are kind of relegated to this microtransaction type of uh uh market now and where they used to be kind of like uh achievements like things that you were rewarded for achieving things in game right um and so by like uh something that i know i personally miss is is uh you know, you, you can still get this in WoW or, or, or what is this, you know. When someone has something cool, right, it's because they put in the effort and they got the thing. Um, yeah, whereas, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Like, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't farm loot boxes to get my Mage Tower appearance, right? I did the challenging content that was the Mage Tower, and that right. signals to everybody that, you know, like, that. that is a, you know that is an accomplishment of skill rather than an accomplishment of, you know, in the instance of, for instance, a legendary McCree skin or something, like an accomplishment of luck or money. Yeah, exactly. And I think that fundamentally affects the the experience. And, you know, I think that on the whole scale of things is relatively minor. But um, this is is a big thing around, like, MMOs, most new MMOs now are free-to-play and uh, all kind of, like, skirt... Uh, on the edge, some skirt less and just kind of dive right in not of this this idea of pay to win, right? Um, the idea of pay to win is exactly the kind of uh, problem that the economic model can enforce on a game that you can't that it can't on a movie. Um, and I think that's 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 a big part of why gamers care about it because the the economics around the game have the potential to make the game less a good game in a way that's so interestingly i actually disagree i like i agree with the principle you're setting up but what i disagree with is that it doesn't have this this same effect on movies i actually do think that it has the same effect on movies and we see that through 3d right like 3d was a gimmick that was literally affecting the material of the film itself right in order to kind of like push this 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 like gimmick for bad monetization policies and i'm glad that we've kind of moved but we as a as a film going public have rallied against 3d and kind of moved past 3d i feel like at this point um i basically never hear anybody talk about it i can't remember the last time i've even seen a theater offer a, a 3d showing but maybe that's just the theaters around me yeah i think i saw um, I aquaman that- in 3d uh, yeah, but like you know, three D necessary like the three D technology necessarily affects things like the the color grading of your film um, and the, like the viewing experience of like the film itself. So I do think that it has some applications, but um, but definitely you know I, I I absolutely agree with the principle that you're setting up, which is that like the way the monetization atta- like attacks the game itself or kind of like cannibalizes pieces of the game itself so that you know you're slicing off uh kind of like chunks of game flesh to sell to to players um like that is a real that's like a real kind of danger i guess i would say yeah Um, movies don't sell dlc (laughs) 
Um, yeah, like, and it ups the stakes, right? Yeah. You know, like, in a certain sense, a moviegoer doesn't have to worry about, you know, like, doesn't have to worry about kind of the Marxist end of things because they, there really aren't that, you know, they're going to be getting a pretty solid standardized product kind of like no matter what. But in games, that is absolutely not the case. And so because the stakes are higher, because bad monetization affects games in really negative ways, maybe that's a good indicator for why we see a lot more uh, kind of like a Marxist discussion um, uh, inside of our game spaces than we do inside of our movie spaces. Yeah. Yeah. Um... Yeah. Uh do you have any any further thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So another thing I wanted to talk about. Um this is the part of Marxist theory that I really don't like. Um another thing that I wanted to talk about is so the the guys that I learned Marxist film theory from are named Max Horkheimer and Theodore Adorno. And okay, so their whole thing is like essentially that capitalism is bad. Right. And so the culture, yeah, right. Well, who would have thought? Uh, and so like the culture industry that commodifies art um, and media and stuff like that is an, you know, like is driven by sort of like capitalist forces. And so it makes the uh, it makes the products of that industry necessarily worse right they have this kind of they have this very dim view of how capitalist forces interact with art and essentially kind of say things like oh only independent art that isn't affected by people trying to sell products is good everything else fucking sucks because it's just like mass market drivel and people hate their lives and they just use it to pretend that they don't hate their lives for a little bit um i am just to pull the veil back i'm speaking on these terms with a lot of scorn because i am scornful of them and i think they are very worthy of my contempt but i do see this also as like a kind of like brand of marxism this is like i guess a little bit of a subtweet of the sort of like jim sterling vein of reviewers where like a lot of the corporate influences behind the games we love are like necessary evils that we need to constantly be like railing against right um and the thing that i don't like about that is it kind of misunderstands and and i think throws all good things under the bus like maybe this is just me being really optimistic tate order and max horkheimer um are super pessimistic about you know like the culture industry and everything kind of along those lines um but like you know my favorite game ever is mass effect 2 and i think it is the best game that has been made of all time right and it was made by bio like a big corporate bioware under a big corporation ea right um and that the the and that like kind of the insistence from this line of thinking that the corporate nature of these things equals bad, uh, I also think is sucks and is wrong. And that was the other thing I wanted to bring up. <laughs> no, I, I, I think I take your point. Um, I think that kind of the, uh, the, the service that, uh, reviewers like the, like Jim Sterling and, and, and others do is still valuable. Right. Cause like, I think that like, in the same vein of uh, 
of kind of like you know like the consumers need to kind of be the count- countervailing force against uh, the the industry. Um, I think they serve as kind of like amplification points uh, mm. for that because like you know um, I, I I too don't I don't think I'm as I, I'm definitely not as pessimistic about uh, like culture can be commoditized, but that doesn't mean it doesn't have value, right? It doesn't have yeah. cultural value. Um, uh, in fact, the fact that you can bundle it up and sell it, I think, indicates its value at, at some level. And then this gets into like a, a deeper discussion about economics that we probably don't want to touch on too deeply. But um, the fact of the matter is, is that um, uh, basically, like, there are things that companies will attempt to do to make more money. And uh, having someone like Jim Sterling of voice displeasure at the earliest kind of possible moment, um, I think accelerates kind of the, the countervailing consumer uh, uh, pushback uh, in, in a way that maybe it's not super ruinous for the industry as a whole, right? Like one, one can imagine um, EA that an EA that continues to make these super big games as a service supported by tons of microtransactions and, you know, Core gamers get fed up with it and just stop playing, and eventually EA like just dies because people stop playing their games, right? Because they can't yeah. figure out what the problem is. Um, whereas if you have someone like Jim Sterling or you know, you know the the shrieking internet fanboys, um, of which I think the two of us are, are at least some part of, right? Like we're we're in that choir, you yeah, guys. <laughs> yeah. But like you know, they. Uh, EA changed course on Battlefront 2, and maybe it wasn't enough to save that game, but maybe it'll be enough to save the next game, right? Um, and maybe maybe they'll start putting out better products before they die. Um, and, you know, maybe EA dying wouldn't be the worst thing in the world, but, you know, I'd, I, think I'd, I think I'd rather send the right market signals to EA and have them make good products than have them die and have to have somebody else rise up in uh and and uh and take their place um yeah and i think it is that that kind of core principle of market signals that makes me kind of like loathe this line of this kind of like adorno line of thinking so much um because it kind of just presumes that people are don't like don't kind of have agency with their own like with their own lives and with their own like dollars um Whereas I think they do have agency with those things, um, and they will voice that agency in like a collective way to make good things come from big giant multinational companies, right? Like, and and you know, and so this is and like, you know, Black Panther was like a billion dollar movie last year that was really meaningful to a lot of people, and I'm not, and I'm not gonna pretend that like the underlying notion of that billion dollar movie wasn't you know, Disney people, like Disney business people trying to make as much money as they possibly could, right? But let's say that, you know, a, a, a more representative and diverse superhero palette is a good, like, is a good thing that's really meaningful for a lot of people. And those people voiced that consideration to Marvel, who listened to that consideration, gave Ryan Kluger, you know, the budget that he was, that he was looking for to make this big giant event that goes out and inspires people, right? Like, I don't think that that inspiration, even if it does kind of have some of these cynical motivations of, oh, I'm just trying to make as much money 
for the shareholders as possible. Um, I don't think that that inspiration is worthless. In fact, I think that it's very much like worthwhile. And so this is why I'm really like deeply uncomfortable um, with kind of like people make meaning out of things, even when they are just like the most grossly, you know, like like the the 1986 Transformers movie is probably a really good indication of this. Um, so, like, trans- the other reason Transformers exists is because of the deregulation to advertising in children that happened during the Reagan era. And so, a Japanese toy company was like, "Oh boy, well look at that. We can make a you know we can make a shitty animated show about our toys that transform from cars into robots or whatever." And make a bunch of money off of people buying the robots and the merchandise. Okay, cool. Like, that's fine. And then they wanted to launch a new product line. So they have, okay, we're going to do a TV movie and we're going to kill off the old line of characters and introduce a new line of characters to get them to go out and buy new toys, right? And so Optimus Prime dies in the 1986 Transformers movie. And it's still something that people like talk about. You know, it's like the most nakedly capitalist, like market cynical movie of all time. And there's still a ton of meaning because people connected with the character of Optimus Prime and his death meant something to them. Um, And so, yeah. and, And I think that that thing kind of also sort of like happens with games right uh i think it also happens with especially like long-running game franchises like we've talked obviously a lot about um the the troubles of battle for azeroth and kind of the wow player base not not enjoying that expansion as much as they enjoy legion right and even like you know the the sort of the troubles that surround anthem i think are also kind of like in this uh specific vein as well um but like those that meaning or lack of meaning is expressed as the agency of like the like the player base themselves and i feel like that is like a you know that's a real thing that needs to be into consideration like insofar as we're talking about jim sterling he's made like a bazillion videos about how like awful anthem is and all these other kinds of pieces of that puzzle um so yeah, I, I you know it 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 is kind of like a complicated, it's like a really complicated topic uh, when you get into that way because in some senses I sort of think that those two voices are in opposition and they have like this tug of war and you know you know what I mean and you don't want to go like too far down one side or the other if that makes sense where you have like the the necessary countervailing force of where the the players need to express themselves appropriate you know like need to express themselves in their desires to in order to help the game companies give them what they want right but you also i do think need a certain amount of like the jim sterling cynicism in there um in order to make sure that people aren't being taken advantage of um and those they are contradictory in a certain sense but i really think that the 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 way it manifests is that kind of like tug of war where we where we uh are reevaluating things that we're seeing along those lines yeah no i i absolutely agree with you that that makes a lot of sense to me um so so kind of in in this vein um uh do we want to talk maybe a little bit about um some of the 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 trends in in the kind of the marketplace and, and how this applies does that make sense yeah 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 um so i do think something that's also you know very interesting to me is the 
single player games as service kind of divide that we've seen and that we've heard and, and that we've talked about. Um, because Sekiro just came out. Uh, Sekiro Shadows Die Twice or whatever is like the fifth or sixth game from From Software, which is like the Japanese developer behind all the Dark Souls games. Well, it, it's, um, it's the fifth-ish Soulsborne games. They have made other games. Like they made Metal Wolf Chaos, I want to say. They made other games oh, okay. before, but it's the, it is the uh, f- sixth Soulsborne game. Demon Souls, Dark Souls 1 through 3, Bloodborne, and now Sekiro. Yeah, because I am kind of interested along these lines when it comes to people who say, you know, the game of, like, big AAA single-player games, it, or the era of big AAA single-player games is over, right? And we're not going to see that again because these games just, like, flop and they don't make their money back um, or whatever. So we're not going to get, you know, like, I think of, like, 2012, like, as being a really strong time. And this is when we get, like, Deus Ex Human Revolution, right? The, the Mass Effect series is coming out here. Dragon Age is coming out here. Um, Dishonored. Stuff like that. I right? mean... Like Assassin's Creed. I mean, the, the, the kind of evidence against it is last year where we had God of War. Uh, yeah, and that's, and that's exactly 2, the thing, right? Spider-Man. Like, uh, yeah, like, uh, to what extent uh, are those market forces as powerful as we think that they are? And I don't have a good answer to that question. So, so I, I've heard this interesting thought. Uh, or theory behind how the industry needs to adapt. This is actually as it relates to movies. And uh, I'm not super into the industry. So you can tell me how accurate this is. But okay. um, the idea is that a lot movies, while they do have structures around them, the, the people that work on movies kind of assemble and disassemble around specific movies. Um, but then after the movie's over, everybody kind of dissolves and then goes to work on different projects as kind of individuals or yeah. smaller no, units. No, that, that is absolutely how it works, yeah. Um, and so with games, that's not how it works, right? Like you work for a studio and you work for that studio um, uh, kind of permanently. Um, and that maybe the thing – like, and so that kind of model is going to tend towards games as a service because it – always has people working on something and always working on something that's actively making money, right? There's no kind of like, you know, with the, with the movie, um, uh, if once the movie like goes out to, to, to play in theaters, if it, even if it bombs, the people who worked on the movie are no longer working for you. You don't have to worry about paying them, right? Like you don't, yeah, you don't have that overhead. Yeah. Definitely. So because like, Maybe that's the way that, like, the single-player games have to kind of – or, like, th- that world has to move, right? Where, like, um, you kind of uh, – and you, and you see this in some extent, right? Like, smaller studios specialize around uh, particular pieces of games. Usually, like, like the, the prime example is kind of uh, studios that do ports. Um, uh, essentially, where the, where the game industry divides itself up into specialists that work as kind of uh, groups that assemble – to get, like you know, a publisher will pull them together to work on a game, but as soon as the production on that game is is done, they're no longer working for the company, and they they split off. And you know, this leads to gig economy type stuff. And there's um, there's a variety of opinions. I think is the is the easiest. Oh yeah, way to no, put it I I that. absolutely understand that that side of things, but I do think that it is really helpful, um, especially because like right now, games like not only are they not structured like movies, they are structured like. Silicon Valley kind of tech jobs, which makes sense because I feel like they're competing for a lot of the same people in a certain sense. Like you are competing for people in that kind of like programmer space. And so, um, but like, I think that that increases overhead by a bunch, 
um, because people expect like that that Silicon Valley work experience um, of like you know literally working in uh, you know like a Facebook or a Google type sort of like office that is that's an expensive way to be fueling your employee like you know your employees or or whatever and so it not it is not only avoiding the kind of low overhead angle it is actively going with a much higher overhead uh sort of structure to to the way the the game companies work and i have heard that this works in some instances for instance uh pixar uh, doesn't do a lot of gig economy stuff. Like they are also run like a Silicon Valley kind of company, but they have a very good pipeline um, when it comes to you know like they have pre-production people and their pre-production people are always working on pre-production and then the movie goes to the production people and they do production and then they go to post-production people. You know what I mean? Like they're they have a really solid pipeline that basically keeps everybody kind of solidly and standardly kind of employed employed across the. Um, like across the movie making sort of space. And I feel like video games want to do that same sort of thing, but haven't been able to, because you hear about it when it comes to like artists and stuff like that, right? Like where, um, one of the reasons that we see the, the kind of current sort of like microtransaction stuff is that the, the pipeline that artists and like engineers or developers use are pretty different. And so the ability of a bunch of league of legends artists to make, chromas or whatever is actually pretty simple and easy for them to do and when they're not working on you know like the next big major overhaul patch or or, or like a remaster of a of, of an old hero or something kind of along those lines it's like easy for them to like put out some of these like chromas um and and that has a big influence on things yeah um i the the thing i i wonder about and i i guess i worry is the right way to put it is if game the game like you know Pixar, I think can work like that because it's got enough money also to float. Even even if the pipeline fails at some level, it's not like Pixar is going to go under if if you know they're not optimally profitable for a little while, right? Yeah, like the little dinosaur can flop and it's not going to be a giant deal. Yeah, um, and uh, but like a lot of smaller game studios don't have that luxury, um, and kind of the the thing I, I worry about with this kind of gig economy type model, which I think would be neat from a business perspective is does that then like, so uh, just kind of coming from the programmer side uh, as a software engineer um, who, you know, and until recently was, was living in Silicon Valley. Um, I, you know, video games already work engineers worse than Silicon Valley companies. And it works because people care enough about video games to accept the lower quality of life so that they can do something that they like. Um, and I wonder if moving to the gig economy, like gets to a point where um, it's just like, that's not enough, right? Like if your choice as a programmer, a talented programmer is work for uh, Google or Facebook where you get your meals taken care of and, you know, you get a bunch of different perks and yeah, maybe you work super hard, um, but that's not any different than the games industry or, you know, you get called onto a project where you work like a madman and then you don't even have any um, job stability afterwards. Like um, I'm sure there are some people who would, who would still do it for, for, you know, love of the craft, but at what, like, at what point do you lose too many talented engineers for, 
for for everything to come kind of crashing down. Yeah, that that actually I think is a real is a real danger. You know, like this is something that I see with my with like friends in the film industry from time to time. You'll see them almost kind of like burn out their own love of filmmaking, right? Like because they are so knee deep in it all the time that when you're like, hey man, you're like, do you want to go see you know like whatever, right? Like, do you want to go see Shazam or whatever? They almost can't have like an authentically. I guess sublime movie experience anymore because like all they can see are the nuts and bolts, if that makes sense. And I, and I kind of feel like that that's like the same sort of danger, um, to like working, you know, like to working in the video game industry from, from like behind the scenes as an engineer, um, or as like a programmer or something like that. When you have like another option that is a lot less kind of glamorous, but also not necessarily as taxing, right? Like they don't have crunch at Facebook, or maybe they do. I don't know. I, I mean, um, so, sometimes they do. But you know, the other part of that is that you know, you say it's not as glamorous, but you know, some so, some ways it, it is, right? Like yeah, um, especially because I, I I think this is this is a thing that kind of, um, uh, th- I know like engineers, like people, programmers. I think get into video games because they love video games, but I also think that a lot of them kind of envision themselves uh, more in kind of like, you know, like with more design as kind of what they also enjoy about video games, right? And like you like a programmer isn't a designer, right? A programmer is an implementer in a lot of places, especially at these bigger companies. Yeah. Um, and I think that that can be disillusioning too at some level, right? Like, yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and so, you know... Um, I, I so I I think that so I I think the gig economy is like the gig economy model makes sense in some ways, but I also don't know I just don't know how how much it'll work. This is this is a weird problem because like at the end of the day, right? Like this like this, it all just kind of like falls out in in weird ways like everybody's super afraid right now that bioware is going to get dissolved that like yeah it's finally going to take them out back and shoot them like everybody's been expecting for the past 10 years um because anthem's not doing great um and uh and uh something that uh the that uh castle super beast brought up is that in some ways bioware is already dead right in 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 the way that like the people that you that you care that that you call bioware are not at yeah. Bioware anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is something. This is something that I see talked about a lot. How there are kind of like, like there are some, but like there aren't a lot of like celebrity, you know, like inside of specific communities. Maybe like Ben Brode was obviously kind of like the celebrity face of Hearthstone, um, in the way that like Zack Snyder is the celebrity face of Ban of Steel or. Um, you know, uh, there there are some, the, but the, they're, the, they're few and know, far between, right? Like there's Shigeru yeah, Miyamoto, like there's Joe Tim Schafer, you know, yeah. stuff like that. But like, there aren't a lot of you know. Th- one of the things about Man of Steel that you can point to is go, oh yeah, so that is 
you know, Zack Snyder, who directed this movie I like, and it's also Christopher Nolan, who directed this movie I like, and he's producing this one, and he wrote it with David Goyer, who, you know, wrote these movies, and it stars Henry Cavill, who's in this and that and the other thing, you know, and we just don't don't think in those kinds of terms when it comes to video games, right? Like, we don't think about the people, you know, the game director of Mass Effect or the writer behind Mass Effect. We just think of Bioware, kind of, like, amorphously and abstractly. Yeah. Um, and 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 that is a big kind of like hurdle because like that star power and that celebrity um, is something that I feel like gets a lot of it gets people like more on board with some of these yeah. things right like like for instance um, the star power uh, uh, fuck who's the M, who's the Metal Gear Solid guy uh, Kojima uh, Kojima. The star power that Kojima was able to leverage against Konami was really powerful, right? Like, he was kind of legit. He had this legitimate celebrity status, and he was kind of being wronged by the company. And he and that wrong kind of, like, got weaponized in the community. But we don't have the same, like, we don't have similar faces for the, that kind of thing when it comes to, like, Bioware, right? Yeah. Like, you know, nobody really cares that, like, Drew Karpishin, who's the guy that wrote Bioware 2, or, I'm sorry, Mass Effect 2, um... Like, Drew Karpachin was just kind of a gun for hire. You know, like, he normally just, like, sits around and writes EU Star Wars books. Um, so, you know, I don't know. That's, a, that's like, a whole sort of another thing. The other thing about, like, the film industry gig economy is that it's supported by a network of very powerful unions. Yeah. And I don't know how much that would, you know, like, a programmer's union makes a lot less sense because programming is such a, like a bigger, you know, I like, mean, programmers as individuals already have a lot of power, right? Like they don't really like software engineers don't really need a union to exert their power as a workforce because they, because they're so in demand that it, 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 they already have that power, right? Like you could like you, like if your company's shooting enough programmers leave and your company dies and they don't have trouble finding another job. Yeah. Um, um, but like, oh, so like maybe like 3d artists or something kind of along those lines, right? Like, you know, the effort and, and kind of care that needs to be put into creating, uh, those unions, um, is not a, like, it's not a small thing. Um, and I don't really know how that like connect, you know, you know what I mean? Like, how do you get all of your 3d artists to unionize, um, into like a powerful union that you know isn't going to be immediately undercut by like scabs or kind of whatever else uh, that that you that like a union busting company could use to bust unions, right? Like we the the thing about film is that it has been submerged in this culture for so long that it is a given. You know, you're not going to see of you know Avengers whatever. Endgame two is not ever going to be a like a unionless production, right? It's going to t you know it's going to take people from all of the different unions, and it is going to be a union job because those are the people with like kind of the expertise or whatever. Um, yeah, if if, we, if they tried not to, you just wouldn't get a movie out of it, or, or like you you wouldn't get anything that'd be recognizable as like a Marvel level movie out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you could, so, right? Like you could, you could hire non, like you know. I know, like my my brother's a gaffer and he's non-union, um, and he works in non-union jobs. But it's not like he's working on uh, anything like super super crazy. Um, yeah, 
because uh, the pre- you know like there is like a certain amount of prestige that goes with th- that those union jobs right um, where they want to make sure that they have the best you know like the best kind of people and the best kind of people typically join up with the union um, and those unions are really powerful right like the, the the writers guild has like a giant building in the you know like in the middle of los angeles that's paid for by its dues but it does like a lot of good work for you know like the writers on all of these sitcoms and everything like that um because they don't you know without the union they don't have health insurance right or they don't get residuals right like the screen actors guild um is guarantees residuals getting paid out to people um and so yeah that like that that is a big piece of the structure of kind of hollywood and the film industry that there isn't the same sort of thing underlying in games maybe there could be like maybe we will see like the designers guild i definitely see people talk about unionizing like you know in casual conversations on twitter but um yeah yeah no it's 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 interesting because there is there's like an infinite field of people who want to be in the industry, um, and I, I think another part of this too is like an indie game can get success in a way that like like even an indie a quote unquote indie movie that you see in a theater is you know far and above anything that like the like lowly like you know like Undertale was one dude right like one dude and one artist. Um, yeah, uh, you don't get that in in the film industry, um, and I like part of yeah, like even even where there are people who you know like even like Steven Soderbergh serves as his own editor and his own cinematographer, you know, like or whatever else or what, like you just can't you. It is too big of a project to do all by yourself. You can't act every part. You know, you can't play every role. You can't light every scene. You just need more people um, to do that. And I don't think games necessarily have that same, uh, you know, that same kind of level, right? Like, Stardew Valley is one dude. Undertale is one dude. You know, like, even... The, even the equivalent of that for of movies the... is, like, YouTubers, right? And that's, like, its own yeah, ball of Yeah, 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 yeah. Um... Oh, that's interesting. The equivalent of that for YouTuber is YouTubers. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Now that I think about it, that makes a lot of sense. And you, and you know, that's that's its own ball of wax, and that might be collapsing under itself because they ex- ex- uh, effectively exist at the largest of Google. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, boy, boy. yeah. That's such a that's such a that. <laughs> I really wonder what like one of these guys from like the 1930s would say about like the current, you know, like if I were to resurrect a Theodore Adorno and show him just like an hour of like, you know, kind of algorithm driven YouTube, like what would he say about it? Show you him know an hour I mean? of like, PewDiePie. Shane Dawson is the culture industry. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah, I mean, I, I know you like to shit on Shane Dawson because of his recent uh, feline escapades. <laughs> I wasn't going to bring it up, but oh, I, no, it, it, it's so funny. Yeah, it, it's funny, but it also couldn't, like, his his documentaries <laughs> are well put together. Like, they, they've got, like, yeah. a, like, a production level behind them, right? Like, I think, like... I think maybe something else, like another thing, would be like somebody like Gush Johnson or any of these like, like people who who like rice gum or whatever. Uh, yeah. Rice gum is still, yeah, I guess. Like you know what you're right. I watch the content cop. Yeah, yeah, yeah the Paul, Paul brothers. brothers. Like brothers. any any of these like low effort daily vloggers who are just literally like you know 
kids buy my merch like for for hours on end right like yeah like i like uh, i mean there there is a, a a controversy about that um because children's television show like so children's tv got deregulated in the 80s with reagan but then it kind of got like re-regulated yeah. a bit in the 90s um where you can't at, you know like you can't like straight advertise to kids you like yeah. there has to be at least that like kind of like narrative framework around you know like whatever right like the barbie show so it has to be telling like stories and stuff like that even if it is kind of like ultimately there to like sneakily be a commercial for you know a barbie doll um or whatever else but like those and those regulations exist and it is kind of questionable whether or not they apply to like online video but if they do Jake Paul is one thousand percent guilty. Yeah, because no, like, um, most of his videos are just about like hawking merch. Uh, Nerd City did a yeah. That's great... exactly what I'm referencing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll let me let me put down to link that in the show notes. Um, he does like a big breakdown uh, of of like the number of typical minutes on a Jake Paul vlog that is dedicated to merch and whether or not that that you know like it would if the law applies, they're definitely foul of it. Although, I, I, like, the funny kind of counterpoint is, like, I'd kind of rather Jake Paul – I mean, it's the wrong Paul brother, but I'd rather Logan Paul just be hawking merch for 30 minutes instead of, like, rampaging through the forests of Japan finding dead bodies. Oh, <laughs> my God. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, maybe. Yeah. I think part of it is also, like – you know, this is kind of, like, part of what I feel like the Adornos of the world miss um, – which is that, like, people are media literate and they are good and they are smart. Um, even children are are better and smarter about this than we give them credit for. Yeah, um, and part of this is just because we are we are like like submerged in a stew of culture now that we didn't in like the fifties or whatever when TVs were like rarer and not as you know not as big a deal and there wasn't children's television in the same kind of way or whatever but like so for instance one of the things i have a really tough time doing is like going back and watching things from like the 80s or even like the 90s because they are so basic and they are so and they are and it's not just that they are like you know it's not just that they are like basic in a in like uh, uh, like a production set of things where you know the the production line on Steven Universe allows for better animation than the production line on you know Rugrats or whatever, but just like from like a you know a narrative perspective and a you know like these things that we would think of as being pieces of the media and the culture, they are just like they are constructed in more basic ways, and that's not to say that they're bad necessarily. Um, but I do think that we are better at this than we give ourselves credit for. Um, and we are creating more complex and nuanced media all the time because people demand more complex and nuanced media because as they continue to watch and consume media, they get better at watching and consuming it, right? Um, and so that's why we have things like Better Call Saul or like the YouTube equivalent, I would I would argue, are channels like you know, whoever like Lindsay Ellis or ContraPoints or whoever that are blowing up because they are not making basic bad arguments because the audience is demanding more from their content. Do you see? Do you, do you know what I mean? I do. I just wonder, like, how, like, 
you know, this lets like the enthusiasts kind of come forward. I, I do think they, 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 they are a bigger part of the audience than they were previously, but then like there are 20 million people subscribed to Jake Paul and like, you know, those are like, there. he's a bigger channel, right? Like he's, he's bigger than yeah. a, like, he's got more subscribers than Lindsay Ellis does. Um, That's true. Um, and so I like, I will grant you that like maybe we're better than is popularly conceived, but I don't think that means that like you know as a as a species we are good, right? Like, the- uh, okay, yeah. I mean, I also think a part of this is just like you you essentially have to start over every time with like a with like a you know a kid isn't born with media literacy, right, right. They need to like learn it, and so I think a lot of this is just aging up. You know what I mean? I feel like people are aging up into this kind of. Um, like into this kind of content, like not to toot my own horn, but I subscribed to Lindsay Ellis when she had sixteen thousand subscribers. Okay, you know, <laughs> like and and the fact that she's at half a million now or whatever is uh, it's not, so it's not so much about like the absolute number as it is the growth. And I feel like there are a lot of people, you know, like if you're a high school kid that was born in the late nineties, right? And so you've kind of like grown up with like YouTube, but now you're transitioning to college and you're looking for more kind of. Um, not necessarily like academically rigorous, but like intellectually rigorous content. I feel like it must be tough to continue watching, you know, the stuff that you were watching when you were 12. I'm not watching the stuff that I was watching when I was 12. I sometimes go back to those like E-Bombs World cartoons and I'm just like, oh God, what the fuck was I thinking? Uh, like, uh, this was so awful. Uh, you know, you know, what's funny. If you'd like to, to, to hear people break down like the, the, those E-Bombs World cartoons, our friends over at, uh, uh, plug in missing the same guys did that's a minute very pod. Good, yeah, uh, it's a very good plug. Yeah, plug I mean yeah. It, it makes sense, right? Like they, they do those Absolutely, breakdowns. Yeah, um, um, talk about exactly how weird they were. Although when you go back sometimes and like, yeah, they were bad, but they were still like good for what they were, right? Like I, I feel like. This, yeah, I certainly have nostalgia for them. I I absolutely agree with that. I, I, I think this falls into. I think this falls in, in a way that I think is more valid than your or you know more true than sometimes your, your point is about how like this is your Kung Fu Panda uh, Empire Strikes Back point. I think it's stronger here, right? That like it's not necessarily that like those things were like bad. It's that you know uh, you know is that. Uh, What's a good example? Uh, uh, what's what's a fiction shit like? Common internet common etiquette is standing on the shoulders of uh, the end of the world part one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That I absolutely agree with that. That makes a ton of sense. Um, and so and so that's right. And that's my like. If there's anything, if there's the grain of truth that I think kind of is the reason that like Adorno is wrong about it. I feel like it is it is that grain of truth is that people are smart and are getting smarter kind of all the time. Um, and they will kind of smart themselves out of being, you know, like, I don't know, kind of like opiated by... I mean, I guess religion is the opiate of the of the masses in Marxism. I don't remember. And anyway, that's fucking that's Marxism game theory uh, in 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 video games as applied to video games. I guess I should say. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, how how was your week then? Uh, how was my week? I've actually been going back and playing Factorio. So there's that. Um, there's a bunch of new cards coming out for the Hearthstone. Uh, so there's a new Hearthstone expansion coming out. It's called the Rise of Shadows. Um, 
which is very cool and i just wanted to talk about it briefly the rise of shadows is the first in a uh in like a year-long storyline for hearthstone um which is the first time that they're doing this this is something that magic has been doing for a long time where like they'll put out a set and then they'll do a block and or like a block and then a set and then a set afterwards and, they, and they're all part of the same story and it's a continuation on that same story the three hearts and expansions this year are all part of the same story apparently um and that story starts with a bunch of famous hearthstone villains getting together and forming an evil league like a super like an injustice society kind of like injustice league anti sinister six superhero team um and they are attacking dalaran for unknown reasons we don't know why they're attacking uh why they're attacking dalaran um but i think that is cool um but i wanted to but i wanted to ask you but i wanted to ask your opinion on something okay so there are there's this um there's this mechanic called lackeys, which are the five of the classes are villain classes and four of the classes are hero classes, right? So they're the defenders of Dalaran and then there's like the evil supervillains, right? And the supervillains can have these things called lackeys and what lackeys are is it'll be, you know, a spell or something like that, you know, do do something, add a random lackey to your, uh, to your hand. And those lackeys are one mana, one ones that do things that do like big things um so for instance you know it might like a one mana one one that battle cry deal two damage or a one mana one one battle you know battle cry discover a spell you know something kind of along those lines um but something that they've talked about is that over the course of the expansion or over the course of the year more lackey there are five lackeys in the pool right now more lackeys are going to be added to that card pool if that makes sense um which is one of the first times I think I've ever seen this sort of mechanic, which could kind of only be done to a certain extent, on a computer. In like yeah, like on a yeah, like in a computer, um, exist in Hearthstone. Um, there are other mechanics in Hearthstone, to be clear, that could only exist on a computer. For instance, like hand buffing, where like you put something into play and it buffs a card in your hand because like the computer can you can you can trust the computer to fairly track that or whatever. Um, but like this is one of the ones that uh, that I'm just kind of like interested in on like a on like a fundamental sort of level. Um, how do you feel about a mechanic like that that evolves that? evolves over time through the mechanics of like the the computer kind of underlying it so i i think i think that's uh i think that's really cool i think that's kind of like why you would play hearthstone over like you know say magic the gathering arena like i i i can't see any reason why you, you would you would uh like the only the, the only thing that, that that comes to mind i don't think this is super valid but like um, the, the thing immediately pops into my mind is, is just kind of like, well, if you're going to do this, why not just make like a, a quote unquote real game? But I, I don't think that's valid at all. Right. Like that's like, uh, um, you know, if you want, like th th there's, I guess a part of me that says like, why, like, you know, because if, since you're able to do this, you might as well like get rid of some of the card aesthetic in the first place. Um, but you know, I don't think that's necessary, right? That's a style choice. Um, 
but uh, yeah, I, I you know if you're gonna do it, you might if you're gonna make an online you know a, a computer only game, you might as well take advantage of it um, and do all the cool things that you could do with only a computer. Uh, so yeah, it seems seems neat to me. I don't is there like a, a counterpoint? Like the only the only thing I could think of. No, is, I, I I don't know. I don't know that what a counterpoint would be or what it is. I just like like this idea and I think that it's kind of like cool. But it's not it's, you know it's not something we can make a whole podcast episode over. But it's something I just wanted to bring up. Um, yeah, yeah the, the the only thing that I could think of as a counterpoint would be uh, would be something along the lines of like if you are buying you know putting money into to get these cards. And uh, in the same way that, like, if they nerf a card, um, they'll give you your dust back for it. Yeah. Um, in the same kind of way, like, if if this makes if this makes the card worse by adding things to the pool, like, is there a uh, is there like then an obligation for the uh, for the, for uh, Blizzard to 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 fix it to to, to refund you at, at that point, right? Like, um, and I I don't like that 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 but. This this is funnily enough, I think a Marxist uh, you know video game theory question rather than like a game design question, um, uh, and so that that's the only objection I can imagine. Yeah, I, I guess I, I guess I uh, I guess I feel that it's it's interesting, especially because now that Magic Arena has kind of like entered as the everybody expected Artifact to be like the Hearthstone killer and said, well I mean they also expected Gwent to be the Hearthstone killer but it's funny that Magic the Gathering Arena seems to have been that yeah. though to be clear it has not beaten Hearthstone it has just expanded the pool um which was kind of an interesting point. Most people who play Hearthstone seem to basically continue playing Hearthstone. Um, but there are a lot more people who are playing collectible card games because there are people who are now playing Magic. So instead of stealing the Hearthstone audience, they actually just kind of created their their new audience. Um, yeah. But the, So the thing that I find interesting is that now that you have magic in the digital space in like a real tangible way how long before magic ha- like makes changes kind of along these lines do you know what i mean yeah i don't do think, think they ever magic do, will ever do I, I think like i think this? that'll hold magic back in some ways but i don't think they ever will okay um just because i can't like they'd have to bifurcate the product at that point and i don't think that they and like maybe in like a f- you know, ten years down the line, they abandon cardboard cards entirely. But I, I don't see that happening anytime soon. Um, uh, I think, yeah, I, I just, I just can't see how you would, how, why, how you would do that, um, or like it's it, just too much of their, of their bread and butter for, for it to, for, for them to abandon the, the meat space. Um, yeah, fair enough. Uh, but yeah, um, uh. The other thing that I've been doing is rewatching Game of Thrones because we're two weeks out from the final Shit. season of Game of Thrones. Do you want to do a Game of Thrones podcast? I really want to do a Game of Thrones. Uh, yeah, I need Game to watch Thrones. it all though. I won't read it all, I guess. But Dude, we can make it a whole thing. We can make it a big series, like all six seasons gets an episode. Yeah, are we that starved for content, Mango? I don't think so. <laughs> um, um, but yeah. Uh, is is that all of you? It's 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 striking um, how good those first those first couple of seasons of Game of Thrones still are. Just like uh, it was one of those things where I went back and I was kind of like, damn, like 
wow that's well-made television uh but that is yeah that is most of uh that is most of my week what have you been up to um so uh, the big things are uh i watched us uh the new jordan peele movie oh yeah i've been spoiled to hell and back on that movie but i have not seen it yeah so i've heard a lot of the discussion surrounding yeah so i thought it was worse than get out um I think I think it kind of teeters on the edge of good and okay. Um, I so I thought the big twist. Um, I won't spoil it here, but uh, there's a twist, and I thought it was super obvious, and I called it like the minute it would have been possible to have called it, um, and uh, and so like you know sometimes like normally that that experience for me is uh is okay like normally that experience is i get to feel smart for the entire movie but it just was a little bit like it was a little bit too much and it didn't like there wasn't a lot of else feel felt like it was riding on the movie like it didn't feel like the movie was super satisfying outside of that so i wasn't a super big fan um i do like uh i do like jordan peele though and i i like i like his movie like i'm super excited for uh for the Twilight Zone stuff that's coming out. Um, and I, I think, like, I like his horror movies because they usually end with, or uh, so far they end with, like, a, at least a semi-happy ending. Um, and that's neat because a lot of horror movies just end on kind of a down note. Um, and so, you know. Uh, but uh, I thought it was all right. If you're looking for something to do, go see us. Uh <laughs> yeah, I get the I get the feeling, I guess, um uh that the the movie would have benefited by being either more ambiguous or more clear. Yeah, so um, uh, this is something I've said before. Um a lot of the premise, like a lot of the premise that underlies what's happening is 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 ludicrous. Um in like a way that would be fine if they had less detail because you just be like it works that way right like the, I felt like Get Out did this well right like you know they just yeah yeah, they, yeah you know it just kind of you know the stuff about the brain swapping was like vaguely explained and it was enough there that you could just be you could just hand wave it this movie um, I said this in one of our chats but I want to repeat it um, like. Cinema Sins could make a three-hour video that's everything wrong with us, um, which I think would be a hilarious name for uh, a movie because it would be – like they'd be hilariously self-unaware about it, uh, but it would be perfect. Um, uh, because uh, if you watch the movie, um, all of the explanation is basically nonsense, right? Like you can look at something and be like, but how – why what's like how does this make any sense and they might as well have just not said it as much as they did um that or come up with some really solid reasoning for what was happening um and done that but i feel like that would have gotten a little bit too wording isn't really jordan peele style um so i i you know making that judgment call i think it could have done with a less explanation um but you know like i said it wasn't terrible uh uh, again, if you're looking for something to do, you could spend your time worse. Um, I also watched today uh, The Rocketeer. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
was... I hate I hate I hate that movie by association. Even though I actually like that movie as a movie, because people always talk about it in ways that I find just like super dumb and shitty. Everybody's always like, "Oh, this is what a superhero movie should be," and you know stuff like that. And I'm just like, "Boo, bad take." Yeah. So I had I had I had bare, like I don't think I'd even really heard of the movie. Uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, Red Letter Media put out a review of it, and, uh, and so I just went and watched it because I figured, why not? I had nothing better to do today. Um, and uh, you know, I thought it was interesting because I, you know. Regardless of like this is what a movie should be, it is kind of like we talk about like the progenitors of the modern superhero movie mo- uh, movement. I definitely see how it fits into that kind of legacy. Yeah, um, and uh, uh, it was really goofy. Um, how, uh, yeah, it is super goofy, <laughs> uh, and I enjoyed it from that angle. Um, it felt it felt. Very very 90s slash given that it was a movie that was supposed to be in the style of the 30s it felt very 90s for what it was um (laughs) that's funny (laughs) that is actually really funny uh yeah i mean yeah i i have been a little bit disenfranchised uh with some of the discourse uh surrounding superhero movies recently because of the Zack snyder thing uh, which I guess I'm bringing up now because, of course, I am. Um, uh, so, oh, like over the over the weekend, last weekend, Zack Snyder hosted um, for a for the film program that he graduated from in college. Um, he essentially hosted a big fundraiser for three of his director's cuts, like screened in like IMAX or whatever in that theater, in order to like raise money for the film program. Um, I think at like Loyola Marymount or wherever he like went to school or whatever, and a bunch of people and and afterwards there was a Q and A, um, and I knew about this because I mean I almost went to these. Uh, I knew about this because I was seeing the Snyder people talk about how awesome this Q and A was and how he was saying you know like and what he was talking about, and then over the course of the weekend, so it's Thursday, Friday, Saturday, right? Like the three movies get shown, and then. On the following Monday, Twitter blows up with, like, people who are now talking it. Like, it is filtered into, like, the rest of film Twitter. And I don't think I have ever been more frustrated with, like, the discourse. Um, because it just got, like, so wrapped up in... Essentially, it got so wrapped up in people reading quotes without reading... Uh, without, like, seeing the videos or understanding, like, the context where they were coming from and just, like, really pissed me off. Like, the one that actually bothers me the most is um, there's a part where <laughs> there's a part where he's talking about how um, the original script for Justice League got thrown out after the reaction to Batman vs. Superman, right? And they had to rewrite the script, and that's the reason we got the Justice League movie that we got, right? The original Justice League movie... Uh, that they had written was the one that references like the nightmare and stuff like that. Um, and like the flash going back in time, which is why those things are essentially now like plot holes kind of in retrospect um, to, uh, to like the wider like thing as a whole. And he said the, and he, and he said, you know, and the studio was reacting to the vocal minority um, of people that didn't like the film Batman vs Superman. And everybody got super fucking indignant about this line. They were like, Oh, Everybody hates Batman vs. Superman. Zack Snyder, you fucking idiot. How do you not know? But the point is, if you watch the video, it's a joke. He's making a joke about that. 
and everyone laughs. And I'm just like, oh, you people are driving me insane. <laughs> it's the same thing, by the way. It is the it's the same thing with the thing where um, the Martha Kent thing. <laughs> yeah, with the Martha Kent thing. Oh my god, people are so dumb. Okay, so he's talking about he's talking about the process of writing Batman vs Superman with Chris Terrio, right? Oscar winning, award winning writer Chris Terrio, um, and uh, and how they were they had conceived of the Martha the the Martha thing in the screenwriting phase. Um, and as a joke, he mentions how they almost like made it so that, you know, Martha Wayne actually survived the gunshot and went into witness protection and became Martha Kent. And so they actually have the exact same and they actually have the exact same mom or whatever. If you watch the video, oh, my God, it's such a joke. It's obviously a joke, but people took this so seriously, and I was just like dying. <laughs> like, I think you could have a like, the, you know, the conversation around does Batman kill people? Does Batman not people? Like, I not kill people. I have a I have a clear you know point of view on that, and I think you can kind of argue both sides to a certain extent with like the, like that discussion yeah. is fine. That was a real that was like real discourse. But Jesus fucking Christ, you people. Wh- they're, they're jokes, okay? Like, God. Uh, um, people, people like I, I, I definitely can sympathize with that with that sentiment um, of people taking things out of context. There's like a bunch of those, and it's kind of littered in, in all sorts of news media. Yeah, and no, so all I'll, the time. I feel like I'll, I'll, I'll let that kind of ride. Um, uh but, uh, but yeah, the, the other things that I've been doing this week are game-wise, you know, playing some video games. Besides the Destiny, I have been playing... I put a little bit of time in the Division 2. Game's neat. Um, uh, I've played the aforementioned Sekiro, Shadows Die Twice, um, through different parts. It's uh, it's definitely a Soulsborne game. Um, it's got this weird feeling. Uh, where So, the thing that's weird about this game is... There's, like, the Japanese samurai Dark Souls was kind of done by Neo, which is by a different company, um, which is significantly different from this game. I'm, I'm not suggesting that, like, you know, one's, like, a ripoff of the other. But um, this f- game feels like a FromSoft game. There's definitely mechanical differences, but it, it almost feels like someone did a total conversion mod of Dark Souls to make Sekiro. Um, which in some senses is accurate because I'm pretty sure it's running on the same engine, but like, it just feels so much like they took the same, like they took the stuff and just tweaked it a little bit to make Sekiro. Um, that it just like in a way that like Neo feels like its own game. Um, and that's not to say that Sekiro is bad. I've been enjoying it a lot. Um, it's the same kind of, uh, you know, frustrate, like, you know, like good frustration that the game is always, um, or that the, the FromSoft games are always something that I'm maybe not as big a fan of is uh, uh, this game is more kind of like Dark Souls has always kind of been in the kind of vein of you know be patient, be slow, be methodical, um, and this game is 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 maybe on the other end of that right. Like you're encouraged to be aggressive, but because you have no stamina bar, you can just kind of like fuck around for a while and wait for things to to reposition and pick your moments and so you can lame it out really hard um 
and I like whereas in Dark Souls, if you try and do that too much, you will eventually run out of stamina and get get shit wrecked. Um whereas you can literally run around in circles endlessly in Sekiro. Um and so I I think the Tim like I don't think you need to play that way. In fact, I think that's not the the best way to play the game. But I think that the a bit a bit uh, of the ability to do that is dangerous. I think is the best way to put it in a okay. game that is based so much around trying over and over and over again. Because I think there's a temptation. I found myself falling into this too. Kind of cheese as hard as possible to get past the boss. You just can't. Um, and when you're like the, the biggest cause of deaths in dark souls in general as a franchise are when you are so close to beating the boss or, you know, you're beating the encounter that you overextend and you, you know, you, you get excited and you try and close it out and then you screw it up and then you die. Uh, and that's like the most frustrating end, but, um, you know, you can live with, you know, like that, that's, that's, that's what you signed up for with this game. When you do that and you're playing this kind of like weird run around game and so like your try is like three times as long because you've been cheesing it out because you're tired of the encounter. I feel like that's that it has the danger of tipping over into the uh, in, into the too, too uh, tough uh, area. Um, other than that, I've been playing some Axiom Verge. Uh, it was released for free on the Epic Games Store, which we talked about briefly. Um, uh, it's a Metroidvania. It's neat. I you know I like Metroidvanias. It's a decent Metroidvania. Uh, those are... <laughs> fair enough. Yeah, no. Those, yeah, those... I mean, I I am in, I'm always interested by uh, Sekiro. I was actually kind of tempted to get it just when I saw it came out. I was like, you know, you've never done any of these from software games. It's a samurai game. You love samurai kind of things, but um, I don't know. It's a, it's always such like a big ask. I feel like. Um... Yeah, I mean, it's it's. Uh... The games are interesting. You could do worse. Um, you know, it's also the most like a normal game, I think, of any of the, the Soulsborne games. Like, um, you like you know, you can't just, you can't like, you know, hardcore hack and slash, but you can um you can kind of approach it a little bit more like a normal game than you would otherwise. Fair enough. Does yeah. that make sense? Um uh, I feel like there are a lot of games coming out in April. Uh, like Imperator comes out later yeah. this year, uh, which in might April be, April twenty fifth, I believe. April twenty fifth, yeah, which might be the biggest one. Is it the biggest? I mean, it's the one. Anno, probably... Anno eighteen hundred is the other one that I'm like really like paying attention to. Um, uh, I'm very interested to see what what Imperator looks like because I keep he- I'm hearing things. Uh, I think a friend of the friend of the cast X was talking about it. Um, where he was, uh, where he was talking about how the game kind of simplifies some of the Crusader Kings and Europa Universalist aspects, which uh, is not is not what he was what he was like looking for and signed up for. Yeah, but I feel like that would be you know I don't know that would be an interesting sort of thing. I specifically think X's take there is um, overwrought. I think he, he like he he talks about you know no unique units, but Crusader Kings doesn't really have unique units. Like I don't think it's going to be any worse than any other games. And the interface looks great. Yeah. I've been following some stuff. Um, and uh, the other thing I wanted to ask um, 
uh, before the, we ended our portion of the weeks is um, have you ever played the Pathfinder Kingmaker game that came out? No, I have not. Okay. Uh, this is a game that I find intensely interesting and intensely frustrating because I actually think the a version of Pathfinder, but you play it like a tactical RPG where you just control all of the, you know, like, like a video game or whatever, sounds amazing. And it's not that. It's a CRPG uh, where it, it goes like in real time and it is the most frustrating thing. I can't explain how pissed off I am that it's like, it's like the uncanny Valley of like game systems because you're building your character and it is everything you expect, right? Feats, classes, you know, races, you're doing one D eight plus two damage, you know, like all that stuff. Right. Um, and then you actually get into combat and it's not turn-based like Pathfinder is it's everybody goes simultaneously and it's like a six second clock or whatever. Um, and it just sucks, and I'm so mad about it. And I don't I, have that, that's the that's the big tradition of like the Bioware CRPGs and uh, what's it the uh, yeah. the, uh, the 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 games that are real popular that uh, aren't uh, Divinity, the other ones. Uh, yeah, like Tyranny, not Tyranny. Tyranny's in the same set, but it's the other Obsidian game. Maybe it's not Obsidian. Pillars of Eternity? Yeah, Pillars of Eternity. There we go. That's that's what I was thinking. Yeah. yeah. Like, th- they are all in that tradition. So, um, I don't know. Neverwinter Nights was like that. Um, yeah, I, I remember. KOTOR was remember, like that. Uh, th- and those didn't bother me the same for the same reason. I don't know. For some reason, it just, like, really... I even liked Tyranny. I never beat Tyranny, but I got pretty deep into it. Um, Maybe it's just kind of... Uh, Maybe it's because you are you you know the Pathfinder system so yeah, so well. Yeah. It's and just, I just oh, I just wanted it so bad because that like that sounds so fun to me like playing like Valkyria Chronicles or something um, or like XCOM but through you know through the, like the Pathfinder system that sounds great make that game I don't know yeah uh, yeah all right well um, I think that's everything we had time for so if you'd like to. Email us and tell us what you think of Marxist video game theory um, or any of the other things we talked about on this podcast. You can reach us at somedervisplaygames at gmail.com or podcast at somedervisplaygames.com. You can follow us on Twitter, um, on twitch.tv slash somedervisplaygames, uh, anywhere that good podcasts are found. Uh, leave us a review, leave us a rating. Uh, love it all. Uh, I think that's everything I had. Buddy, do you have anything else that you want to promote? I have nothing else I'm looking to promote. In that case, until next time, dear listeners. Until next time, loyal listeners.